Genesis 37. As we consider continue on, I realize it is Palm Sunday, but we're gonna keep going where we're going because as I prayed, we will see Jesus here as much as we would see Jesus riding on the donkey's foal coming into Jerusalem. We will see Jesus here and consider him this morning even as we shift gears a little bit. So if you'll follow along with me, if you have a Bible with you, Genesis chapter 37. Don't need to tell you how to find it. Genesis 37, verse one. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. And these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Now, if you stop right there, recognize typically the word generations will be the word that is translated seed. Your generations after you would be your seed after you, but not here. Here the word is toldot. If you've tracked with us at all through this study of Genesis, you're familiar with this word now, toldot. There are 11 of them in the book of Genesis, and this is the 11th, the final one. A toldot is a what became of. So technically, this is what became of Jacob. These are the what became of Jacob, verse two. And so begins the 11th, the last toldot here in the book of Genesis. But we begin with a question, why is it called the toldot of Jacob and not the toldot of Israel? At this point, you would think that the word would declare this is the toldot of Israel. The Lord has already confirmed his name change twice. There as they wrestled through the night, Genesis 32, 28, the Lord said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Yisrael, struggler with God. You've struggled with me, you've prevailed. And so, God renamed Jacob Israel at that time. Well, it, it took a little while. It just wasn't sticking. He kept going back to Jacob. Genesis 35, verse 10, the Lord says to him a second time, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. So doesn't it follow that this should be the record of the generations or the toldot of Israel and not of Jacob? In addition to the name change, from this point forward, and we briefly touched on this midweek, the center of gravity, as it were, shifts away from Jacob and onto his sons, the sons of Israel. Yes, Jacob is still in the mix, but this is now going to deal with, from Genesis 37 to the end of the book, we'll deal with the sons of Jacob primarily, and one son in particular, but get this, in thinking about this, why is this the toldot? Why is it the what became of Jacob and not the what became of Israel? Throughout the scriptures, we find, if you're paying attention to these things, that Jacob deals with or represents the natural man. The natural man. Not the carnal man. Esau represents the carnal man, but Jacob represents the natural man. That is, driven, reactionary, intellectual, Soulish, the natural man. Israel, Israel is representative of the spiritual man, led, taught, discerning, called by God. 
So why is this the toldote of Jacob and not the toldote of Israel? Because the natural man needs a deliverer. We need to get out of our heads and receive Jesus in the heart. We need a deliverer. In fact, you might notice in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22 and following, the first complete list of the 12 sons, it's called, now there were 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Shimon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Yosef and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So the sons of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, the toldote of Jacob. Hey, the natural man needs a deliverer. Jacob's family needs a deliverer. And so immediately and centrally, the 11th toldote is going to turn its attention to the 11th son of Jacob, a young man by the name of Joseph, and a marvelous story of deliverance. But this is also vital to understand as we come to the story now of Joseph, a beloved story by many. My daughter, Anna Marie, tells me this is one of her favorite in all the Bible. So we need to do it justice, Anna Marie. <laughs> But you need to understand going into the story of deliverance, the, the story of Jacob's life, this true history, that Joseph, Joseph is a dreamer, not a deliverer. Joseph is the dreamer, he is not the deliverer. And I think you know what I'm implying. Interesting to me that in Genesis chapter 37, as with the Shechem situation back in Genesis chapter 34, in this chapter, God goes unnamed. He is not referred to, he is not referenced a single time in Genesis 37, and yet, yet his presence is absolutely implicit. You know he's there. You sense his presence there based on the circumstances and what happens in this chapter. And by the second chapter of the story, which skips chapter 38 and picks up again in Genesis 39, God is not implicit, he is explicit. Genesis 39 verse two begins, the Lord, that is Yahweh, was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. I remember years ago, I was real excited, Cheryl and I got tickets to go see the Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber play, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And it was colorful, it was musical, it was comical, and it was secular and so disappointing to me personally. And you may love the musical, but there was one character who never made his way onto the stage, one character who was never referenced, never referred to a single time in the whole musical, and that's the Lord. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat made Joseph, even made his coat into the protagonist. But in the story of the life of Joseph and this story of deliverance, Joseph is not the protagonist. The coat is a minor player at best. In this record of Joseph's prophetic dreams, without explicitly naming God in chapter 37, we clearly see that God is the focus. God is the protagonist, not Joseph. The Lord is the deliverer, and truly, implicitly, Jesus is all over this chapter. The story of Joseph is not a story about a coat. 
And it's not a story of a cocky little brother or even the story about a suffering servant, at least not Joseph. It's a story of deliverance of how God delivers a people by divine intervention. These are the records of the generations, the toldot of Jacob, Joseph. When 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So Joseph is out in the fields. He's pasturing flocks along with Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. He's assigned with those four. So the five of them uh, caring for the flocks. And apparently, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher are engaging in immoral behavior. Something wicked's going on. Something evil among the brothers. The phrase here, bad report, in verse two, is literally a report of wickedness. There's evil afoot among the brothers, among the sons of Jacob. And so this youngest of Jacob at this point, not the youngest, Benjamin's the youngest, but this 11th son now comes back home to dad, the age of 17, and tells him what's going on. A report of wickedness. Now, we have a word for that. We say tattletale. He's a tattletale. Number of different commentaries refer to Joseph as being a tattletale here on his brothers. The word tattletale, that is a 15th century word. It goes all the way back to the Flemish or Dutch word tatellen, which literally means stutterer. I think that's interesting. It's one who stutters out blame or accusation upon another person. Who didn't have, at least those of you my age, who didn't have, don't be such a tattletale drilled into you, especially in the public school? You tried to share about something going on, bring something to light to a teacher or to, uh, to someone in authority, and they'd say, don't be such a tattletale. And I think they said it because they just didn't want to deal with the situation. But don't be such a tattletale. I understand motives matter. And what that typically was about was just saying, hey, don't just throw someone under the bus to throw them under the bus. Don't be out there just to bust people. Don't rat people out just to see them disgraced. Hey, that's true. Don't be that kind of tattletale. However, understand that God does call his own to be truth tellers. Truth tellers, not tattletales. Leviticus chapter five, verse one says, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or known, if he does not tell, then he will bear his guilt. It's one of those verses you're reading, you go, huh? What he's saying, what the law is saying there is if an Israelite is under oath and refuses to tell the truth that he knows, he is guilty of sin before God because God wants his people to be truthful. God wants his people to pursue righteousness. The question is, what's the balance between being a truth teller or being a tattletale? Which one is Joseph here? And here's the Christ-like caveat. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse eight says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another 
because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, we're called to integrity with the truth. What we're not called to do is slander, libel, or go around uncovering the sins and the failures of other people. We're called to love each other. If by telling the truth of another person, I am throwing them under the bus, I am causing them pain, I am uncovering their sins simply to make them look bad, simply to make myself look better, then I'm a tattletale of the worst sort because love covers. If I'm telling for the hope of saving someone, if I'm sharing the truth out of true and genuine love, that's another thing. Which is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all into him who is the head, Christ. So yes, we speak the truth, but love is the motivation. Love is our reasoning. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, verse five, that love does not take into account a wrong or an evil. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't say, ha ha, gotcha. I'm telling on you. I'm uncovering you. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love says, I love you too much to do anything than the best for you. Now, some might say, well, okay, if love covers a multitude of sins, are we supposed to just sweep sin under the rug? No, no, but look back at the story. To whom did Joseph bring the report of wickedness? To his father. He went to his father. I don't believe Joseph here was out to bust his brothers, but he loved and he trusted his father more even than his own brothers. You do the same. You do the same. There is great wisdom in that. When I have something to speak about another, first take it to the Father. Go to the Lord and speak the truth in love directly to brothers and sisters. Certainly go to a brother or sister. Seek to restore one who has fallen, one who is caught in any trespass. Galatians chapter six, verse two. Restore such a one. But if you really want to talk to someone about the sins of someone else, take it to the Father. Verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a varicolored tunic, not an amazing technicolor dream coat. And in fact, the translation of this is interesting. The NASB says a varicolored tunic. Maybe your translation, if you've got a different one, says something different. It's two words in the Hebrew. It's pasim ketonet. A pasim ketonet. Now, a ketonet is simply a robe. So his father made him a very special robe. Pasim is more difficult to translate because it can mean colorful. I think Martin Luther actually was the first one to translate it colorful. That's been questioned greatly over the years. Whether color has anything to do with it, others say no, pasim has to do with being ornamented. So perhaps it was sewn with gold thread or had some kind of ornamentation on the robe to make it unique and noble and royal and, and beautiful, a one-of-a-kind coat. The more likely translation of this robe, this ketonet, is that pasim is from the word pas in the Hebrew, which means palms, palms. A palms robe? 
what it means is pasim, palms would be long. A robe, literally then, that would come all the way to the palms of both the hands and the palms or soles of the feet. So it's a long robe with, with long sleeves running all the way down to the feet. A long and beautiful robe. And the whole idea behind it is that it was a noble gift given to just one son. Just given to Joseph. It's a robe of royal favoritism. And here the problem begins. Actually, you know what? This problem didn't begin here. This problem began an entire generation before. This is family favoritism. This is carried on. This is generational. Oh, Jacob, didn't you learn from the sting of your father Isaac playing favorites with Esau? Didn't you, as an older man, look back and say, I will not treat my children the way my father treated me, looking me as, as less than and, and highly favoring my brother over me? That must have hurt Jacob as a boy. Now Jacob, as a father himself, is playing the same game over. And here's a dysfunctional family truth for you. In the natural self, in the Jacob that we can all be, we don't become less like our parents as we age. We become more like them. There's only one way for us to become less like, and I'm not saying anything negative. I'm not trying to slam any of our parents. I have wonderful parents. But the sins of the father, as the Bible speaks of, gets passed along to the second, third, fourth generation not because we can't do anything about it, but because that's how we were raised. We tend to internalize these things, and the older we get, the more they tend to come out. And there's only one way not to repeat generation after generation the sins of the previous generation. One way. You gotta be born again. Gotta get a new father. I love my dad, but my heavenly father has now become the one who calls me to himself, who calls me to be conformed to the image of his son, to the image of Christ. And so Jesus said in John 3, verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3, six, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 23, for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable, the natural man, but imperishable, the spiritual. That is through the living and enduring word of God, born again, born again by the Holy Spirit and the ongoing transformational power of the imperishable word of God. That will change you. If you had a rough upbringing, if you had a deeply dysfunctional family and you think, I don't wanna repeat the sins of the father, the sins of the mother, I don't wanna go backward, then go forward in Jesus, born again, fresh and new. And you can become the person that he's created you to be. Another way to put it is just don't grow up an old coot. Grow up into Christ. Well, Jacob's replay of his father's favoritism doesn't bode well for little Joe. Verse four, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Friendly terms in the Hebrew is l'shalom. L'shalom, they hated him and they could not speak to him peaceably. 
They couldn't even be civil with him. And what we see following in the story is this hatred heating up. Note this, in verse four it says, they hated him and could not speak to him on peaceful terms. In verse five it says, they hated him even more. In verse eight, it says at the end of the verse, they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then finally down in verse 11, it says his brothers were jealous of him. And what we see in this chapter is hatred unchecked. Hatred that is growing and increasing as it goes, heating up, growing into bitterness and ultimately into jealousy. Hatred leading to jealousy. James says, Yaakov actually says in James chapter three, verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. Let me pause and say something to you right now. A lot of times we read phrases like, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and you think, well, I don't have that. Check your heart. Check your heart. We have a way of making something like jealousy look awfully self-righteous. We have a way of making selfish ambition as I am pursuing truth. I am doing what is good here. Don't be arrogant. Don't lie against the truth. The best thing to do is pray that God would check your heart and help you to see, as David prayed in Psalm 51, see if there is any way, any wicked way in me. Psalm 139 as well. No, the passage says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but listen, is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. That's what's happening. As this family dysfunction increases, there is disorder and every evil thing, and it begins to heat up. Verse five. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, how they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, sheaves of, of wheat or grain, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Do you really, are you really gonna rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They rejected the very notion that little Joe would ever have any authority over them. Come on, Joseph, 17-year-old runt. What are you talking about? You're not gonna be boss of us. You won't rule over, you're the 11th son. Who do you think you are? But this dream was divinely prophetic of their own deliverance, of what God was going to be providing for these very sons that were rejecting Joseph, rejecting his authority, because you know in the story, his authority will be their salvation. His authority will save them. The dream is interesting because it is a dream of sheaves, that is wheat. We're talking about food resource. And so later, Joseph is gonna be able to provide grain and food for his family, just as the dream has him as a stock, as a sheave in the, in the field. 
and the rest bowing before him. In fact, if you skip ahead to chapter 42, verse 5, the Bible reads, So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground, an immediate fulfillment of that dream. Fulfillment within a matter of a few years that they would actually fall and worship before, bow down before Joseph, who would then provide their salvation. Interesting, why couldn't they see it now or at least entertain the idea now that there might be something to this dream? This is a family of dreams. Dad's dreams led them to where they were and it could have saved an awful lot of trouble if they at least would have entertained the idea or the notion or discussed or thought about from a spiritual perspective what may be behind this dream. But there's absolutely no way they could do it. They could see it because hatred and bitterness blind the eyes of the heart. You know, when I'm bitter towards someone, I can't hear what they're saying, even if what they're saying is the truth. I'm angry with someone, I'm not listening. But sometimes the person I'm angry with is the one who's right. Which is why every time we have relationship struggles and problems, we've got to go to our own heart first. Someone makes an accusation against me. I need to check my heart. Someone criticizes me. I need to say, Lord, is there something wrong here? I'm in contention with someone. I need to start with me and say, Lord, keep my heart pure so that I will not miss your deliverance. It's always a matter of the heart. It always comes back there. Now, I repeat Joseph is not the protagonist here. All he did was dream a little dream. In fact, he is very passive through Genesis 37 and and most of his life all the way up until he is raised up second only to Pharaoh, everything happens to him. Now, you could call him a victim. He doesn't act like a victim. He doesn't have an attitude or a mental uh, state like a victim, but things happen to Joseph. He's not the protagonist The one who's the protagonist here is the Lord. The hand of God gave both the dream and will give the deliverance. Well, then comes another dream, verse nine. He had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Remember, Jacob was a dreamer too, wasn't he? It was in dreams that he first heard from the Lord. In fact, the first two appearances to Jacob were by way of dreams, Jacob knew that there was something to dreams. And so it's interesting that verse 11 ends that his father kept the saying. Literally, he guarded, he held on to the words of Joseph. He at least, Jacob, was able to process and consider and think about these words of Joseph. 
Here's what's interesting. The Bible talks about that a prophet is only to be believed if what he says comes true. And so oftentimes throughout the the prophets in scripture, we'll see them give a prophecy that is short term, that is fulfilled in a few days or months or years. Within the lifetime of the prophet, he'll give a prophecy and it comes true. Then the long-term prophecies can be believed because the short-term prophecies come true. Such is the life of Joseph. The first dream is a short-term prophecy. It takes place, it is fulfilled within his life. The second dream, the second dream is very different. It's far more profound. Now it is, we could say, partially fulfilled 3,800 years ago in that Jacob and and the, the 11 sons and Leah, the family, they will come into Egypt, they will bow down before Joseph like the 11 stars and the sun and the moon, bowing down in the dream. So there's partial fulfillment, but the complete fulfillment was not realized until, listen, until the first coming of Jesus Christ. We studied this recently back in Revelation chapter 12, verse one. A great sign, John writes, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars and she was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And the only place in the Bible that gives context and clarity to the starry sign of Revelation chapter 12 is Joseph's heavenly dream. It's this dream right here. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. It's so important to do that because people will make all kinds of constellational conjectures, curious allusions, cultic interpretations of Revelation chapter 12 or just confused assumptions. There are those who say, oh, the woman, that's Mary. Or or the woman is the church. And that's not biblically informed. According to the biblical context, the woman speaks of Israel. Israel. And the child, of course, then is Jesus. And we see more than one place in the Hebrew scriptures where Jesus is referred to the child being born to Israel. Isaiah chapter 66, verse seven is one of those. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. That is Israel giving birth to Jesus. Jesus coming into the world through the Jewish people. Before she travailed, travailed, AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem and the people being wiped out. Before that happened, which is interesting because usually birth pain and travail comes before the birth. But in this case, the birth came. Jesus comes into the world before the travail. And then Isaiah 66 Verse eight says, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also then brought forth her sons, speaking of the nation of Israel rising again, which we saw fulfilled May 14th, 1948. So in the prophetic dream of Joseph, we know who the sun, moon, and stars are. They are the people of Israel. And that's how we understand the prophecy of Revelation chapter 12. Well, Joseph wasn't just seeing stars. Joseph was looking in this dream at the lineage of the Christ, seeing father, mother, sons bowing down, recognizing this is 
the people of Israel. As Paul writes, Romans chapter nine, verse five, the people of Israel, from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever, amen. Now, speaking of the Christ, we gotta shift gears a little bit. Right here in the middle of the story, he's had these two dreams, the brothers are incensed, they're furious. You know there's more to the tale, more to the story. It's not a tale, it's a history but we need to draw back a little bit because we start to see Jesus all over the place. In fact, the parallels of Joseph to Jesus are breathtaking. The rabbis will even have a saying. They have Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. Messiah, the son of Joseph, they see as the suffering Messiah, one who will come and suffer. And then they have Messiah ben David, the royal ruling Messiah. They have two Messiah figures because they can't figure out how the one Messiah could be both. A sufferer like Joseph and a king like David. They didn't understand Messiah would be fulfilled in one first coming and second coming of Jesus Christ. So follow me with this. You may already have recognized a few parallels between Joseph and Jesus, but I want you to draw back to verse two and watch these come out of the story with us. Verse two, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Jesus pastures his flock. First and foremost, right out of the gate, Jesus says, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And shepherding throughout the Bible always has a way of pointing us toward Jesus. Now, it's interesting because shepherding by Jesus' day was a low rung on the ladder of society. And yet, the patriarchs were shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they were all shepherds. Joseph himself, again, a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd for 40 years in Midian. David was a shepherd on the hills of Bethlehem. It was to shepherds on those same hills that the angel came announcing the birth of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. No wonder the Bible is so rich with shepherds. Psalm 23, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus pastures his flock, just like we see Joseph here pastoring his flock, his father's flock, by the way. And then verse two continues. It says he was pasturing while he was still a youth, it says at the end of the verse, Joseph brought a, back a bad report about them to their father. Why? Because Joseph put dad first. Well, Jesus always put his father first. He always put his father first. That's the second thing to note. That Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse 28, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me and he has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Joseph sought to please his father. Jesus always put the father first. Verse three, tells us now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Hey, while there's no partiality with God, Romans 2.11 tells us, he does have a favorite. Jesus is beloved by his father. Above all his sons, Jesus who pastures his flock and put his father first is number three, beloved by his father. 
John the Baptist once said in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So he's beloved by the Father in the same way Joseph was, so we know Jesus is. And then, of course, verse four, they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Verse five, they hated him all the more. Verse eight, they hated him even more. In verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. Hey, Jesus was, is hated by his brothers. At first, they thought he was just nuts. You know, his family did. Mark chapter three, verse 21 says, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. He's nuts, he's crazy. He's got a major Messiah complex. <laughs> Jesus is the only one for whom it was no complex. He truly is Messiah. Well, later his own brothers taunted him. They're saying, if you're looking for fame, go up to the feast in Jerusalem. Show yourself to the world. John chapter seven, verse five, for not even his brothers were believing in him, so Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, your time is always opportune. And then Jesus said this, notice, I believe reading their hearts, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And here's what you gotta note. There's a progression here in chapter 37 of the hatred of the brothers toward Joseph. Their hatred increased even more, even more, even more. Think about the increase of the world's hatred to Jesus. How John chapter one, verse 11 says, he came to his own, that is the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. That's always where it starts, rejection. Rejection forms into hatred. And we know that because down in John 15, verse 18, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Which is why I can say, in Joseph's terms, his brothers hated him. Jesus was, is hated by his brothers. There are those of Israel today, and I speak this with respect because you know how I feel about the Jewish people. I have deep affection, deep love. But there are those of Israel today who can't even say the name Yeshua. They shorten it to Yesha, and they do it as almost a byword or a curse. They hate Jesus and the Christians. They don't understand the love of their own. Rejection yields hatred. Well, verse eight, going on, his brothers actually said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? Joseph's authority was rejected. In the same way, number five, if you're keeping track of these, Jesus' authority was rejected. Like Joseph, he pastures his flock. He put his father first. He's beloved by his father. He's hated by his brothers. And number five, the authority of Jesus was rejected. John 19, verse 15 says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Rejection of King Messiah. 
people continue to spurn his authority today, to reject the one who comes to deliver, the one who comes to save. They deny the authority of Jesus. Listen, please hear me. If you deny the authority of Jesus over your life, you deny the power of the only one who can deliver you from death. It is that black and white. It is that clear. Jesus is your life. Deny him and all you have is your death. Verse 12, verse 12, continuing, says, then his brothers, these are after the two dreams now, picking up the story, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. That's about a five-day journey up from Hebron. Now, all the way back up to Shechem. Remember what happened in Shechem? It was a mess. There would be no village, no town, no city there now because the brothers had wiped them all out. So they go back up to that region. Of course, there were other Canaanites around who would have known what they did Probably would have kept their distance. So with some degree of brazen bravado, the the boys go back up to Shechem. And Israel, verse 13, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Number six on our Joseph to Jesus list, Jesus was sent willingly by the Father. I will go, I will go. Do you remember the parable Jesus told about sending servant after servant, a master who goes away, who leaves a vineyard to his servants. And then he sends a servant to check on it and they kick him out of the vineyard. He sends another one and they kill him. The servant speaking of the prophets being driven out by the leaders in Israel. And finally in the parable, the master says, I'll send my son. But they take the son and they say, we'll steal his inheritance, and they kill him, and they throw him out of the vineyard in that picture of the very life of Jesus. Well, Jesus was sent willingly by the Father, just like Joseph is sent by Jacob, and he goes willingly. This is not the story of a son who is forced into sacrificing himself under the coercion of a heavy-handed father. Same with Jesus who said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Or how he far more poignantly prayed, Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. True willingness is functioning under the father's will. It's abdicating your will for his. And that's what Joseph does. That's what Jesus did. Verse 14. Well, then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him. Behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Hey, in the same way, Jesus, number seven, came first seeking his brothers. Jesus came looking for his brothers. I call it the first commission. And we have the great commission, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse five, the first commission The 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. 
Do not enter any city of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we see Jacob looking for his brothers. He's in search of his brothers. He's going to his brothers. And Jesus came first seeking his brothers, the Jewish people first. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. Well, verse 17, then the man said, oh, they've moved from here, that is from the region of Shechem, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Dothan. Now we need to pause just for a second in the Joey to Jesus list. Think about this, the word Dothan is interesting this region to the north, about a day's journey to the north of Shechem. Dotan means two wells. It can also be translated double cistern. What we're seeing here is the sons are far from home. They've made a, a good day's journey, as I said, from Shechem, which is now 60 miles away from Kiriatarba, Hebron. They're getting farther and farther and farther away from their father, and they end up in Dotan, which is a place that is dotted and pocked with dry, empty pits. In fact, it's thought that Dotan was named that way, uh, two wells, because the first well dried up and they had to dig a second. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. The Lord would later say of his people Israel, they have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's the application. When we go looking for wells far away from the Father, we end up committing a double evil, a double sin. The first is that we forsake the only one who can truly water our thirst. The second is we forge cracked cisterns that just can't hold water. John 7, 37 says, if anyone is thirsty, oh, Jesus said, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, welling up, as it were, he says in John 4, to eternal life. That the well is the well of my spirit, the wellspring that is eternal, not an old cracked cistern, not an empty dry well, certainly not Dotan, the place of two wells and the place of all those dry, empty pits. Verse 18. When they saw him, that is Joseph's brothers, from a distance, and before they came, he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we'll say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. How can these brothers be so violent? And the answer is practice. They were violent in Shechem. They slaughtered an entire town. Killing a brother, especially one so hated, so loathed, one they were so jealous of, not a problem. We're told in verse 21 that Reuben heard and he rescued them out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Listen, Jesus was plotted against. The very language is so interesting to me. They plotted against him, verse 18, to put him to death. That's exactly what happened with Jesus. That's number eight in our list. 
After Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in a glorious, marvelous, wonderful, miraculous raising, we see what happens, and Jesus knew this would take place. This is John 11, verse 45. Let me just read the fallout to you. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told the things which Jesus had done. Tattletales. <laughs> Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I think it's absolutely marvelous. Caiaphas, the, the one who will hand Jesus over to be crucified, prophesies unwittingly, foolishly, as he proclaims, as he plots for the death of Jesus, he prophesies exactly what would happen, that Jesus would die for the whole nation. So from that day on, listen to this, from that day on, verse 53, they planned together to kill him. They plotted his arrest. They plotted his death. Just like Joseph's brothers now, Jesus' own people, plotting against him. Mark chapter 14, verse one says, the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. And so, number nine, you know the rest of that part of the story that Jesus was not only plotted against, but he was arrested, and we believe, held in a pit. Arrested and held in a pit, just as Joseph's brothers would do to him. I'll read that in just a moment to you, but so interesting. There's a psalm, we studied this past summer, it's called the Psalm of the Pit, Psalm 88. And it is a psalm, it's a teaching psalm of the life of Joseph. But if you read through the psalm, it is prophetic of Jesus. Again, the Joseph to Jesus parallel. That Messiah bin Joseph, Messiah son of Joseph parallel, the suffering servant. You see this throughout the psalm. Psalm 88, verse four says, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength. Or Psalm 88, verse six, you have put me in the lowest pit in dark places, in the depths, your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all of your waves. And this teaching psalm of the life of Joseph speaks powerfully and prophetically of Jesus. There is a pit in what we now with almost 100% certainty is the ruin of the house of Caiaphas himself. It's in Jerusalem today. We visit it every time we go to Israel. What's remarkable is you go down into the basement cellars of that house, you come to this place where there's an old cistern, but it's a cistern that has been retrofitted in the rock to be a holding tank, a cell, if you will. And we believe that when Jesus was taken into the house of Caiaphas, as they debated and discussed, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna handle this? 
they dropped him down into the pit and he stayed there while their plottings and their maneuverings were taking place. This dry cistern where Jesus was held. Well, back in the story, listen to this, Genesis 37, 21, Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their father. And so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, that is that robe, the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. By the way, side note, Reuben looks an awful lot like Pontius Pilate here. Pilate, who, what did he do? He tried to appease the angry mob. He brings Jesus in. He says, well, flog him. Beat him mercilessly. Then we'll take him out there, pathetic and bleeding and bruised and broken. We'll show them, and and then they'll have some compassion. Perhaps they won't crucify him. So they do this, and they bring Jesus back out. Pilate was intending to set him free. He even offered them Jesus as a Passover uh, offering of appeasement, but they said, we want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Reuben looks like Pilate, trying to save his own neck, trying to appease the angry mob of his brothers. And then verse 25 said, then they sat down to eat a meal. Unbelievable. They've just thrown their little brother into the pit. And they sit down to have some food. And they raised their eyes and looked. Behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and to cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our own hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Well, that's nice, Judah, thanks a lot. And his brothers listened. And then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Joseph was sold for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was sold for 30 shekels of silver. Zechariah prophesied, Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. What we see play out in Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, as Judas betrays Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. How remarkable, what a parallel. Both sons of Israel are handed over to Gentiles. And both sons of Israel are betrayed for silver. Handed over for silver. By the way, this is a side note. I I was just thinking about this after the fact. How interesting that He's in this dry pit. He's down in the pit and they sit down to eat a meal together. And some commentators say that it must have been hard to eat over the wails of their brother coming up out of the pit. And I can't prove this, but I have a feeling Joseph was silent as a lamb is silent before his shearers. That Joseph was in the pit. We see no mention in the scriptures of him even making a sound in the same way when Jesus was led into his trials. He was silent. When they took him to crucify him, him they, they, he would not speak a word. He did not defend himself. Jesus was quiet. And Jesus, this is number 10 in your notes, if you're tracking, following these things, Jesus became payment 
for our redemption. Joseph sold for 20 shekels of silver, Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, and silver, I've told you before, and watch it, it's gonna come up in the story again, that silver is the biblical symbol throughout the Hebrew scriptures of redemption. Silver speaks of redemption. Jesus became payment for our redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. One more illusion, although there are many more that you could probably find in this passage. Verse 29 tells us, Reuben returned to the pit. Now behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? Wow, that sounds like Peter and Mary having gone to the tomb. Where is he? We went, we went to see him and he's not there. He's no longer there. Verse 31, so they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood and they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we have found this, please examine to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Think about this, the father is now examining the blood-drenched cloak to see if it belongs. He says, he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. The blood of a son that covers our robes of righteousness. And we also see an act of deception taking place here, don't we? He's dead. He must be dead. Isn't that what the Romans did? When Jesus, when his body was taken, was not to, when he resurrected, they said his body was just taken by his disciples tried to cover it up, tried to bring a deception at this death, resurrection of Jesus. And then verse 34, and we're not to my final point yet, but hang on. These are just, there are just so many here, they're just popping out all over the place. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. And so his father wept for him. And I see a parallel there to Thomas, who refused to believe. I believe because Thomas was still in mourning. Thomas was so upset at the loss of Jesus, he was unable to believe in a resurrected Jesus unless he saw the nail prints. And so Jacob here is inconsolable. But verse 36 says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard, and that story will pick up again in chapter 39. But listen, in verse 36, even while all this sorrow, all this mourning is taking place, Joseph's rising has begun. He's beginning to rise. And we will see, as the story of Joseph comes to its epic conclusion, Joseph, by the hand of God, will rise over all Egypt, the power of the world at that time. 
Genesis 41, verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then, Genesis 41, 45, note this, Pharaoh named him Safinat Peneach. This was a new name given to Joseph. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Safinat Peneach, which means God speaks and he lives. God speaks and he lives. Now, from the pagan perspective of Pharaoh, he's, he's equating Joseph to a God. And when this God speaks, they will live. And that's the idea behind the name. And yet, God, the real God, the one and only God, made Joseph the source of life and deliverance for all the children of Israel. God speaks, and they will live. But the 11th parallel between Joseph and and Jesus, and I'm just sticking to 11 because hey, we're in the 11th toldote and Joseph is the 11th son, so let's, that's a good number. The 11th parallel is that Jesus will deliver all Israel and will rule over all the nations. Romans 11:26 says, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Oh, I know there are people who say, wait a minute, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? How does that work? And we've talked about this many times. All Israel will be the surviving, faithful remnant of Israel at the end of a seven-year tribulation period. All Israel, having come to faith in Messiah, Jesus Christ, will indeed be saved by Jesus. I wish I had time to go into that right now. We'll save it for another time. But listen, as we conclude, the account of Joseph is absolutely stunning as a picture in type of the deliverance of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But there's one big difference between the two. One difference, that while Joseph was a dreamer, Jesus is the deliverer. He is the deliverer delivering up himself unto death that you, that I might have life. Go back to the original question of this morning. Why is this called the toldot of Jacob? Again, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Why is this called the toldot of Jacob and not the toldot of Israel? And I repeat, the natural man needs a deliverer. What we see in this final toldot that lasts now through the rest of Genesis is a pattern in the Bible. It's a pattern that is repeated many times. God is a repeater because God wants us to get this, wants us to understand it. This pattern that we see from creation all the way to Calvary in the Bible, and here it is, God chooses and sends a deliverer. The deliverer then is rejected because of envy and unbelief, but the rejection becomes the means by which the deliverance finally comes back to the people. Romans chapter 11, verse 15, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. Where are you in the story? Where are you in the story of deliverance? On this Palm Sunday morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus 
riding on the donkey's foal, went up to Jerusalem. And you know what the people cried? Matthew 21, verse nine, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna from the Hebrew, Yashana. Yashana, they cried. Two words, Yashana. Yasha means deliver us. Na is simply now or we pray or we beseech you. Deliver us, we pray. Joseph's is the story of deliverance, a true story, an historical account of deliverance, perfectly and amazingly paralleling the real story of deliverance, the deliverance of Jesus Christ. Oh, Hosanna, deliver us, we pray. And if you will trade in rejection for reconciliation, if you'll accept his deliverance, what will your life be? What will your acceptance be but life from the dead? Would you pray with me? Father, we said last week that the world desperately needs a savior. Lord, we pray this morning for our deliverer, for we know our deliverer is coming. And we say this morning, Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we believe, Lord Jesus, that you are yet to come, that you will return. And we pray, come quickly. Deliver us. Deliver, Lord, those who are in bondage to sin. Deliver, Lord, those who are in bondage to suffering. Deliver, Lord, those who are in bondage to sorrow. And may we cast aside rejection of our only hope of our deliverer for the acceptance of what you did on the cross of Calvary. As you came ahead of time, proclaiming yourself as Messiah, triumphantly coming into Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning you will triumphantly come into somebody's life whether it's through this teaching or some other from some other church or some other conversation between people that in this world today, as people are watching the numbers of people dying, we would become aware of the numbers of people being saved. That's our heart, Lord, because we know that's your heart. We ask Jesus for salvation to reign over this world gloriously, for people to give up rejection in favor of reconciliation for people to see you, Lord Jesus, as the one, the only, the true deliverer of life from the dead. Oh, we bless your name and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>